You're listening to Masters of Digital Transformation, brought to you by AIM10X and hosted by Tony Saldana. And welcome to Masters of Digital Transformation. I'm your host, Tony Saldana. And over the past couple of seasons, we've had the opportunity to bring you senior executive stories and insights into some of the top challenges around digital transformation. I'm delighted to continue that with uh, today's guest, Philippe Lambeau. Philippe is former VP planning at Johnson & Johnson. And prior to that, Philippe was actually in P&G and Kraft Foods and Mattel and Merck and served on the board of GS1 and, and probably several, several other responsibilities, which is why I'm delighted to welcome you to the show, Philippe. Thank you very much, Tony. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to this. Awesome. Uh, you've worked, Philippe, in complex environments across industries, you know, as I mentioned, as diverse as packaged consumer goods or medical and pharma and fashion. And of course, you've played leadership roles across the world in operations and supply chain and engineering and program management and logistics and, and so on and so forth. And uh, when you and I spoke the other day, I discovered that we actually had common roots at Procter & Gamble. In your case, of course, that was just the starting point of an illustrious career across the world. But would you mind sharing in your own words your journey with our listeners? I like to say that I'm actually a very global profile because I worked last time I counted in about 38 countries for at least three months. So that's, a, <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy going around and, and meeting lots of different culture. And I've done that through, to your point, Tony, working with Procter & Gamble when I was in Disposable, right, which got me the... Yeah. Very nice fringe benefits of having two years of free diapers for my daughter <laughs> at the time. And then I, I had a, a long career with about 20 plus years in craft foods, like you said, across the supply chain from manufacturing, procurement, strategy, IT. The journey there was interesting because while a lot of people still know craft foods, right, which is now part of craft food Heinz and has been split with Mondelez. At the time when I was hired, I'm from Belgium originally. When I was hired, I was hired with a very small local company, which got bought by a $4 billion company, which got acquired for with Philip Morris, merged with John Food and Kraft Foods <laughs> to become a conglomerate of about $50 billion per year in 2010. It was really about what, buying one company a month, right? When the, <laughs> the, the Berlin Wall fell, fell off. Wow. It was really about integrating all those companies Months after months, you know, some some of those companies were 200 years old. It was really about creating an overall scalable supply chain end to end, and that was very very exciting, I must admit. And that brought me around in Europe, in Latin America, in Asia, and and I finished in in Chicago on in the headquarters uh, as global senior vice president of planning, logistics, and customer service. Wow. And then I, I moved on with what was two stints uh, overall in healthcare, uh -huh. in Merck and Johnson & Johnson in orthopedics, right? Very, very uh -huh. different culture, very different capability. We can talk about that in the future. And then in the middle, I had a stint with Mattel, which is very uh -huh. different, where uh -huh. it was all about toy industry, much shorter shelf life, right? I've worked with 15-day shelf life or two-year shelf life. But, but work with a one year where everything needs to be started and stopped and then rejiggled okay. for the next season is, is very different. And then lastly, I'm now currently the VP of Global Logistics for Tonal, uh -huh. which is a, an AI-based uh, fitness uh, startup, so very different in San Francisco. And I'm having a lot of fun here installing AI-powered fitness equipment in, in people's homes, so very, very different from P&G. 
Oh, I bet. And not just different in terms of the work, but what you're describing here, which is the evolution of not just your career, but the world around you, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, acquisitions, divestitures, rejigging companies, redrawing maps of processes. That is absolutely fantastic. And in fact, one of the things that I realized as, as you spoke is that a common thread across many of your roles is that in many cases, the job actually did not exist before you took them on, right? I mean, you've been constantly creating the future. Correct. You know, even within that, you've been creating scale and that's hard. I'd like you, if possible, to give us a story or two on what you did. So, you know, take an example of creating the future and the challenges and, and, and how you overcame them. Right. So a couple of examples. One of the scale, we, we talked about AI. It's a lot about digital, right? Digital mm. transformation is a word that not or an expression not always existed before. We used yeah. to talk very much more bluntly about in, implementing an ERP. That's what yeah. digital <laughs> transformation meant at the time. And, you know, when I was part of Kraft Foods, when you buy all those companies, every company has their own system and, you know, homegrown and proprietary and you name it. And really, everybody understood that if we want to gain scale, if we want to do things together, uh-huh. we have to do things the same way with the same tool. And, and I worked a lot. That's how I went from IT to actually logistics. As we were buying company, we were also expanding where the product of those companies were sold, obviously. Uh-huh. One example that you would know is a chocolate Toblerone, which is uh-huh. sold still today. in I know it very well. And, you know, in, in theory, it looks very good. That's how it's actually a simple supply chain, all made in, in Bern in Switzerland, mm-hmm. and you have to sell to 100 countries. Except when you sell to so many countries, you have to have common processes, common planning processes, common tool. Otherwise, what you're going to do is end up receiving a 100 spreadsheet, a different mm-hmm. timeline with different format. And so what we ended up going is is obviously harmonizing the KPI, harmonizing the processes, and then progressively realized that we would never make it if we were not to, A, go for the same SAP system or same Uh ERP, and B, start eliminating all those different SAP that were invested Uh by Italy, Germany, you know, you name it. And and what we did basically is embark on a a multi-year journey. I drove that from an operation point of view, and then it was expanded from an enterprise to really drive a a journey that brought us from 50-50 ERP Uh system to three. And with that comes a lot of journey about understanding the process, make the differentiation between what's truly a legal requirement, which is different, Uh versus I want to be different, right? Get the people on board, drive change. I mean, you've done that, Tony, so you know yeah. what it's like. And, and at the end, you know, there is a, a huge price where suddenly what is obvious for everybody, when you go and do things together, you have all the expense in the world, all the costs the same way. All of that was, was not that obvious and was a complete paradigm just, just even 20 years ago. So that was one example that, that I did. Another one, you were talking about evolution, right? As I think through a lot of journey that I lived through is, is that globalization and then return back. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. at the time, when you think about it, and again, a PNG would be the same, you have a lot of local company making yeah. products for a lot of local markets. And then a lot of those companies went back in the 90s, 2000, and said, we're going to be global. It's going to be yeah. a lot more cost efficient. And everything was, was made locally, started to move away. 
And we obviously, everybody rushed to China. Remember those days where container used to cost a few thousand dollars? You could get that for 20 days and it all made sense back then. And obviously now with the global climate change, with, with all the, the, the global disturbance, we're coming back to 180 degrees where yeah. everything ideally is local. Yeah. It's good for the climate. It's good for the, the lead time, for the response time to customer. I've done that many times where, for example, with Mattel, all of the factories were in Southeast Asia, right? Uh -huh. Or in China. Uh -huh. At the time, the labor inflation was 20%. And basically what, what you have, what used to be very inexpensive manufacturing, even yeah. without automation, starting to be very expensive. And we moved and we're still doing this today in, in uh, some of the company I work with. You know, you bring the, the labor back to Mexico yeah. or into the US. And, it, and it, now it makes sense because of the labor cost and, and the automation ability. So I've worked on all changing those footprints, but ironically in both directions, right? An interesting project to outsource to many outside companies, Eastern Europe at the beginning and then Asia. And now bringing back a lot of those manufacturing footprint back to uh, local markets. That's the beauty of, you know, what I think you've done as you've created the future, because the future is not static, right? The future is about driving scale, sometimes through labor arbitrage, cost wage reduction, and, and, and sometimes it is through optimizing other things, as you said, including the environment or, or maybe even using automation as a way to eliminate manual work. And so that's really what I find fascinating because over a career of a few decades here, you've lived some of these waves. One of the things that you also mentioned the other day when we spoke was that sometimes your industry frustration is that we keep solving the same supply chain issues over and over again. You mentioned, of course, COVID shipping. And the other day we talked about port issues, which obviously is top of mind, you know, for most people today, but this is not new. You saw something similar previously when you worked with Mattel. I, I would love for you to kind of share this story as well as step back a little bit and talk about why does this solving the same problem issue happen over and over again and, and what needs to change? So a, a couple of examples, right? You mentioned the port. So when I was at Mattel, which is about to restart again the ILWU labor negotiation in mm -hmm. Los Angeles port. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I think it was 2015, that was basically a blockage of the port, right? A lot mm -hmm. of companies, dredge company, did not have a lot of margin. A lot of players wanted to unionize. We had chassis problem. All of that fast track now, seven years, basically, <laughs> it's the same, right? Yeah. I mean, what I said in 2015. And at the time, we had a lot of commitment we met with the Secretary of Transportation, by the way, Mattel was part of the, the company that really explained and educated the government about it. It's not that simple. Right. And my point was many of the players basically had contracting interests, right? Today, a shipper, if, if you know uh, one of the statistics in the shipping industry right now, as of uh, nine months of 2021, the shipping industry has made twice the amount of revenue that they've made in the last 10 years altogether like Merck's you know yeah, like Zim yeah. the idea is you really have to come together from a government point of view to be able to bring those together and yeah. that's exactly yeah. where you are and so personal frustration is why 
do we always wait? And like in some <laughs> companies that are poorly run, we always work, you know, in, in uh, the two by two in PNG that I learned is you have to work on the things that are important, but not urgent. And we seem always to work on the things that are important and urgent. It's too late, right? And so that's one thing that I feel, okay, how do we learn from this? Another one is also the sales and operation planning. You say, oh, all those discussion about SNOP and and we don't seem to find better ways to basically have the right discussion. Yeah. And very often it's a lot about people, right? So it's not only, again, about, about tools. What has changed, though, I must admit, today, we have a lot more sensor, a lot more real-time capability, again, a lot of data. And we've talked about that with, with O9 and the CEO to really bring all of those data in real time so that you're now planning and executing at the same time. I think at least that gives me a, a lot of high hope that we are not going to redo the mistake that we've done because the facts are constantly in front of us. Whereas before you could continue to have a sales and operation planning meeting that was always looking back and, and never having the right information. Yes, no, absolutely. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, maybe we solved the same symptoms of the issue, but the root causes of many of these issues, whether it is poor infrastructure or labor relations or the end-to-end planning, that still remains the same. So as you kind of look at the supply chain industry, and I use the term broadly because there is a piece of that that is within the company, so planning and, and logistics and execution. And there's a piece of that that's outside each of our companies with the government or with other companies. Is there a systemic piece of this that as an industry, you would like to see supply chain tackle? I think the whole notion of common language, as we spoke, where because I was part of uh, the GS1 board yes. of industry for about 10 years with many of the leaders of the industry, I think that common language is critical. I mean, yeah. like yeah. like you and I, my mother tongue is not English. I speak, yeah. you know, in English. If we didn't, it may be a bit more difficult to conduct <laughs> this, this discussion. This is the type of things that people take for granted. But again, it's something which is really important, but appears not to be urgent. You talk about the COVID crisis you spoke about, Tony. You know, everybody keeps using the QR code, right? Well, yeah. To show the vaccine. Yeah. Well, that QR code is something that comes from UCCAIN as a standard yeah. that, that wouldn't even exist if, if industry leaders and retailers, manufacturers hadn't come together and to say, we're going to speak about that. We're going to do yeah. this. What I would like the industry to work on is, is all those standards that are more electronics, that, that allow companies to, to create a dialogue. Things like RFID, implementation of barcodes, are really, really important for the future. So that, again, whether you are with Google, whether you are with Amazon on Alibaba or many of those large companies, they use the common standards so that smaller company and entrepreneur are not shut out. And, And that's key because if you are totally out of the market because you need to invest or implement standard that you cannot afford, you're basically locked out. And again, that competition, I think we need the industry to continue to work on. I think it does. It's not always visible to the people on the street, but I think this is something that I believe firmly the industry should continue to collaborate on. It certainly is something I hope the industry continues to collaborate on because 
I think what we're now seeing is that countries and governments are starting rather to diverge in terms of priorities. Companies are trying to cope. You know, do you do you want to be a national company with an international footprint that's kind of free of you know specific country laws? And there is an important role, which is a role that you and others played on GS1 which was to drive that common language. And and I really hope that the industry continues to evolve in that direction. I think it is important for consumers and and employees of of all of these large companies to be able to do that. Absolutely. Uh, Philippe, one other question that comes to mind, especially because of the breadth uh, of your experience. In many ways, you've been there, done that, so to speak, when it comes to supply chain. And yet, COVID has thrown a wrench in you know, the best laid plans of many of these companies. Was there something that happened in the supply chain industry as a result of COVID that even caught you by surprise? People didn't realize before COVID how much we think incrementally, right? Mm. So again, you know, having been in the consumer industry, growing by double digit was very rare, right? You could launch product, but as a company growing 5% was amazing. You could do that in emerging market. You know, the mature market was was very tough, lots of market share. But when when COVID happened, the bottom fell off because suddenly the demand wasn't there. And I was at J&J at a time and it was some of my grueling years, like many of, of my colleague, I'm sure. It was a six months to 12 months lead time uh, supply chain with very specialized labor. We talked about labor, yeah. right? Those are people that takes months to train. And suddenly the, the, the hospital shut off, no more surgeries, therefore no more demand. And what do you do? You know the patient are going to be there. You know yeah. that there is a need that's not like I can stop going to the movie. Yeah. There is a need there that they're going to have to be treated. So, yeah. so there is a pent-up demand. On the other hand, you've got a supply chain with, with a, a cash flow requirement, which is enormous. And that had, for most of us, never been more than a plus minus 3%. You assume you had a baseline and the baseline disappeared. And then I think what we all learn is to say, okay, let, let's go back and let's rebuild our complete assumption about what's the universe that we have. And it also drove a lot of very, very much more granular understanding, at least in my experience with JNJ, because when countries started to be impacted, you couldn't say, well, I'm going to have a solution for the US. <laughs> because now I've got Texas going one way, I had New York going the other way, and California behaving differently. And so it really taught us the value, what I said about having your finger on the pulse on, on that demand, who is really out there using, as opposed to push inventory downstream and hoping is going to be used. It taught you the value of supply chain, lead time. Do I stop? Do I, how do I make trade-off? And what do you want me to do? And, you know, at j it was very, very challenging because there was no sales. There was a huge amount of inertia. And at the end, that's where, you know, the leader have to make those trade-offs. Usually they don't want to make those trade-offs. Yeah, yeah, I want to, because I don't have sales, why don't you shut off the whole thing and you'll come yeah. back when I need you on a turn of the button. That does not exist. And very often when you you explain about capacity and average to people, they don't realize that, you know, some of the capacity that you've lost, like on the chip industry, it's not going to yeah. come back. Yeah, it's never going to come back. Yeah. When, yes. when I was at Kraft, I, we used to laugh about, from a financial point of view, Kraft used to want Oscar Mayer. 
Now, Skarmire was producing, obviously, hot dogs. And the line was basically on a yearly average, was only used at 50% of the time. So the financial was saying, why don't you eliminate half of the capacity you don't need? <laughs> Except, obviously, the American eat a lot more hot dog on July the 4th. There you go. December, yeah. <laughs> and that's something that sometimes gets lost in the discussion. I think we got better for it. I think we, yeah, got, for sure. we understand yeah. better what's going on and... It's been a unique, at least for this century, a unique experience here. There are so many things that conceptually we thought could happen. I mean, the idea of a global pandemic had always been around. And yet it caught us by surprise when it did in the, in the manner in which it did. And the same was true even on supply chain. We knew that you know, agility is really important, but having really optimized many of these supply chains for costs, you know, the importance of agility really caught us by surprise. And of course, the work that you did at J&J and, 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 and other places to improve the industry is absolutely fabulous because you're right, this is going to change us for the better. Maybe one of the questions related to that, as you look at the specific area of planning, what is it in the way the industry and tools and technology is developing that excites you the most? It's the whole graph technology that is mm. able, you know, Nine mm. talks about digital brain and the capability, therefore, to replicate and simulate which di digital twins, what's really happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that concept, and it took me a while to, okay, what, what is that, a digital twin? I understood it what it meant from create a digital train of a machine and simulating what it's doing under, you know, multiple change. But having the notion of being able to simulate an entire end-to-end -end supply chain yeah, yeah, yeah. and understand <laughs> what's happening, being able to model the fact that we really live in a probabilistic world, right? Yeah. There is yeah. no such things as a fixed lead time that you always meet. All of that before was very theoretical and yeah. each of us was working on it through different tools. But I, I think tools like 09 are really fabulous in the way that they can integrate a view for each of the players. The demand planner can be seeing one thing that, that the, the manufacturing person can see other things while at the same time working on the same database. In all my previous time, you would have tools that would have a demand module, a supply module, uh -huh. and it's an OP. And all of that would be often, you would throw things, it would be the same software, but uh -huh. reality, it was a different engine. The marketing was common, but, but the language was, again, not allowing you to make trade-off. I think all of those, when you see real-time IoT capability integration with that type of probabilistic digital twins, Graph technology, like you see being used, you take it for granted when you use Uber, right? They know where you are, you're going to see this. Well, why is it so difficult then when we have a planning system for a company? Why is it so difficult that I cannot see where, where my truck is? Right? Yeah. The same way. I think it's now starting to be feasible in ways that are affordable and don't take years in the making from an IT department that you know doesn't always meet the timeline in their budget. It's fascinating what some of the new technology and architectures uh, are able to do to simulate in real time the right. possibilities. And the world of planning is obviously never going to be the same. Going from sequential batch processing of what the plan is all the way through, hopefully, what we see now more and more, which is real-time sense and response. Uh, I agree. This is something that excites me as well. We've talked about your experience you know, as a supply chain professional. I know you're also 
well-renowned as a change leader and a change driver and a people developer. I want to deep dive a little bit on leadership. You've been a change driver. Very often we talk about change and change resistance and immune systems in companies and so on and so forth. We don't often focus on successful change drivers like yourself because you've had insights that allows you to be more successful in getting the organization to move along with you than uh, perhaps some other people have. So I want you to talk a little bit about what are some of the lessons you've learned about bringing the organization along with you on the journey whenever you're leading change. One of the things that I do learn is not all industry are common and mm. you really have to interpret this. So, mm-hmm. so I told you, I've been in pharmaceutical, in the fashion, which is really the toy industry, and obviously in consumer goods. And while a good supply chain is a good supply chain in every one of those industry, what really you have to listen when people tell you in a given industry they want to change, you have to understand what's important and what makes sense. Yeah. And one of the learning that, that I really learned the hard way when you go from a very small consumer goods uh, margin environment, yeah. you know, yeah. with very short lead time. I remember yeah. I used to be really upset when the manufacturing cycle time in cheese and craft foods was seven days where I thought it should be four days. So <laughs> running all those SKU within a week and you go to a pharmaceutical industry and suddenly they tell you, well, the batch is going to last six months, come back yeah. next year. <laughs> and you have to decide now for what's going to happen in 20 years, because if you don't make the decision, all bets are off. So mm-hmm. one of the learning that I made, number one is, you know, you really have to understand and, and listen to what matters, mm-hmm. where's the margin, what do you mean by customer service mm-hmm. and what's important, which customer is important, right, versus the other, because not, not all customer are always the one you want to have or the mm-hmm. one you want to serve the same way. So that was, you know, as, as I learned, this is something that, that intellectually might be obvious, but, but I, I learned throughout my career. To drive change back to the normal theoretical, you really need to understand three things in my mind. Number one, you need to have a clear case for change. Very mm-hmm. often people tell you, well, I want to change, but I don't know what you're trying to do. In the exactly. case I gave yeah. you about the 50 SAP to three, well, it, it, it might be obvious at the CEO level. When you yeah. go to the craft Italy organization, they're very happy with their system that yeah, they've exactly. managed, moved for 20 years. And their frame of reference is not the same as the CEO. Yeah. That case for change needs to be very powerful and need to be agreed by all. And then the flip side of that, you need the usual so-called top-down commitment which is, has to be more than the CEO or the CFO saying, oh, you shall do this, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. our mandate is not sufficient. Yeah. You have to be sticking to your guns. You know, it worked. We did uh, one system, actually. We ended up having one SAP system. We were closing the books and at the time, 48 hours globally for all the country. But it was a, a six years, very long journey. Yeah. And God yeah. knows six years is an eternity as people change. And move. <laughs> yes. And so you have that top-down commitment that has to stay. And you have to have the ability, therefore, as a third topic, the six years may be needed because everybody cannot change totally in, in a short time. You have to be able to have a vision and an end case 
But at the same time, the people that live in the trenches have to say, has my life changed? Are you better <laughs> off than you were four years ago? You are you seeing those change or are you seeing a long and painful journey yeah. where you have to double the number of hours to build a future that may be very, very elusive? And I found that if you can get those, and in some case I was successful or, you know, obviously it's never you, it's about the team, right? But yeah. you have to create an ecosystem that is there. And in some case, when one of those ingredients are there or was there and disappear, I think you also have to recognize that, look, that the, the moment is gone. And if one of those ingredients, like a leader disappear, you don't yeah. have mentorship, all bets are off. While yeah. you may have the capability, the willingness, the funding, the momentum is going to change. We talked, Tony, why, why do we keep repeating the same thing? Very often, that's why I admire company like Unilever and P&G. Well, when you step back, they really have driven a humongous change. They are able to reinvent themselves, right? Yeah. Even Apple, you think Apple, yeah. it's obvious, but... You know, think how many, uh, uh, you know, the, the revenue of iPhone that didn't exist so many years ago. Oh, they yeah. reinvented themselves two or three times for a trillion dollar company. That is not easy. And many companies don't do it. These are really important change leadership lessons because all change is local. You've got to make the change relevant to every person or every, you know, part of the organization. Okay. And, and you're so right that the ability to do that is important. The other thing that you talked about was the agility and constancy of purpose, which is even as people change or organizations change, there is a core of what's constant, which never seems to change. This is important uh, leadership lessons that you're sharing with our listeners. So thank you very much for that. Philippe Lambeau, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. Uh, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your insights. Thank you so much, Sonny. It was a wonderful time. And of course, to all of our listeners, as always, I really appreciate your company. To get uh, information about the new episodes, please subscribe to the podcast. And uh, hey, if you enjoyed this, perhaps you could consider sharing this podcast or telling a friend about it. Until next time, I close uh, with our usual reminder. In today's world, don't just transform planning, reinvent it. Thank you for listening to Masters of Digital Transformation. For more information, be sure to check out www.09solutions.com slash aim10x.